Um, all right, switching gears. I want to uh, start off with a little imaginative exercise. So if you find that you can uh, access your imagination a little more easily by closing your eyes, feel free. Um, otherwise, uh, I want you to picture that you're sitting down at a desk somewhere, and you've got a paper in front of you, and you're going to write out your will. Okay. So maybe you've had this exercise before, maybe you've done this, or maybe it's your first time. But you're thinking through, what do I want to communicate to the people that I care about, about the things that I care about, through the things that are in my possession? Okay, so you, I might wanna write some things into my will that um, I really want people that uh, I'm passing things on to, to know. Uh, I might want to give some of my possessions to some charitable work that is really important to me. I want to communicate some sort of a message to someone that, maybe a, a child or relative. What would you write? No question that it's a kind of sobering experience, and it's one that's bizarre because you're picturing your life ending, and then your contribution somehow continuing, or in what way your contribution could continue. And it's a, it's a weird thing to think about, for me anyway, to, to trying to picture what would be the most meaningful way to pass something on to my kids, or to the people that um, Aaron and I would decide we would want to send something to somehow. It's, it's something that really causes you pause, isn't it? Where you think about what are the things that really matter to me. Let, let me share a couple of uh, crazy ones, okay? Just to get us thinking about this. Here were some of the ones that I, uh, I went to the, uh, the WWWs, the World Wide Web, and found some of these. Okay, listen to this. Jack Benny, anybody ever heard of him? Jack Benny? He willed, in his will, he wrote that, uh, that every day one rose would be delivered to his wife until she died. So for every day until she died, this florist had to walk yep. a rose over to his wife. Kind of cool. Um, there's an eccentric Canadian lawyer named Charles Vance Miller who, when he passed away, he had bequeathed the residue, the residue of his estate, so all of the money left from his estate, to the mother who, since his death, had given birth in Toronto to the greatest number of children. <laughs> so he said, whatever lady has the most kids in a given amount of time gets my whole estate. And I guess it was like a tie between three women that all had nine kids in the time. So that was kind of a cool one, I thought. A um, couple more? Are we into this? <laughs> okay, uh, a new husband. Okay, this one This one is a little bit uh, bitter. Okay, so uh, German poet Heinrich Hein. Heinrich Hein, I just noticed. That's quite a name. He left his, state, uh, his estate to his wife Matilda in 1856 on the condition that she has to remarry so that there will be at least one man to regret my death. Oh. <laughs> uh, talk about a posthumous dig. Okay. Uh, I like this one. Seventy strangers. Okay, so a guy in Portugal 
an aristocrat named Louis Carlos. He, in his will, he left a considerable fortune to 70 strangers randomly chosen out of the Lisbon Foundry. So imagine getting that call, you know? Just random people in the phone book got seven, oh, 170th of his estate. Another one, Mr. Henry Budd hated mustaches so much that he said if any of his sons got a tash, as he called it, they forfeited the right to their inheritance. So that was in his will. It's like November came a little early back here. Uh, okay, this one um, uh, is, is kind of interesting. Norman Digsweed, 1897, promised a substantial reward to Jesus Christ upon his return. Okay, so he had willed money to Jesus on the condition that he could convince the executors of the estate that he's the real deal. Okay, so Jesus gets the money if and when he comes in. So, uh, kind of interesting. Maybe you have a different way that you go about writing your last will and testament. But suffice to say, when we think about that transition from how we live and the events of our life, what goes on and who we have impact on, to how we will leave a legacy or be remembered, it conjures up some pretty important thoughts and feelings, doesn't it? Today we are launching into this series that we're calling The Handoff, and the place that it starts is thinking through that period of time between when Jesus was walking around with his disciples on the planet, shaking up the religious establishment, healing people, teaching people, and so on, the period of time between when he left and when his followers took the reins, so to speak, and carried on what he had started. And so to do that, we're going to spend some time um, looking today at the transition from the first book that Luke wrote, which uh, aptly was called Luke, you know, so Luke, the, the, the Gospel According to Luke, which is really volume one of a two-part series, and the second is Acts. So Luke, the Apostle Luke, wrote uh, Luke and Acts, okay? So Luke is the first book. It's actually the biggest book in the Bible. Um, and then Acts is the second uh, volume of that book. And so we want to look today kind of at the transition between those two stories. The story of a man who was a revolutionary, who did incredible things that would forever change the world. And then the, the second book, which is about his followers and how and if and, and where and when they would take the mantle of what Jesus started and carry it on into the future. Okay, so that's where we're wanting to go today. Um, as we do that, why don't we just invite God into how we're hearing his word. Because a lot of us have heard some of these things before. So let's invite God's spirit to speak fresh to them again. So thank you, Lord, that... Your Bible, your word, the, the Bible, is a, is a book that we come to not like we do other books. We come with an open hand, with an open spirit, to hear how you would want to speak relevant truths to us here and now. And so we invite you to do that as we look through these passages. Okay, so we want to start with the Luke, uh, the Luke passage. So the 24th book of Luke is kind of the end of the story, the end of the first story. So we'll put it up on the screen. Um, you know, many of us know the end of the story. So just to recap some context for how this really ends, the, the last chapter, it's the empty tomb. You remember the story of Easter? People running to the tomb, noticing Jesus is gone. 
that sequence. Next is the road to Emmaus story. You remember that, where the guys are walking to Emmaus, this mysterious guy comes along, tells them everything they're wondering and more about who this Jesus figure is, and then they find out it is Jesus. Uh, that's, that's next in the story. Then we have this, this scene that's like, for me, in my imagination, so alive, where Jesus enters the room with his disciples, and he's hanging out with them after he's died and, and been raised again. And so there's this sense of, like, this is, this is him, but is it his spirit? And he eats a fish. He literally eats something, which seems significant to Luke to show to us that it isn't just a ghost floating around, but it's a person in the flesh eating something in kind of a way where a new way. And then we get to this place where Jesus is in the room with his disciples. Uh, and this is how Luke ends his first letter. And he says, Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And then he goes on to say, You, you folks, are my witnesses of these things I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. Okay, so we've got a, a last will and testament situation here. I'm going to bequeath to you a gift. When I'm gone, something is coming for you. Okay, it's in my will. Uh, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power on high. And then this last scene is one that is... Um, Weird. It's a, a one you kind of have to wrestle with, and it's how this book ends and how the next volume begins. And it's a topic that we don't talk about very often, but it's a pretty impactful moment and that probably needs a bit of reflection, and it's called the Ascension. So when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, so he takes that group in the room, they go for a little walk, he lifts up his hands and he blesses them, and while he's blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Okay, that would be uh, noteworthy. Um, and then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. The end. That's Luke's gospel done. Which leaves out some details that would answer some questions that I at least would have about how some of that went down. And so here's some fast facts on the second book, okay? So Acts is the second book, the follow-up to the first one. It's written to a guy named Theophilus, both letters, which is interesting, right? Theophilus gets, I, I looked up and, and people guess that Acts is like a 25-foot scroll, okay? So you can imagine the investment it would take to write a 25-foot scroll describing the Acts of the Apostles. It's shorter than Luke. So the second scroll is 25 feet long. The first one, maybe like 30. I don't know how to measure the Bible versus a scroll. You know, is how we have it versus not. Anyway, it's a lot of scroll that's been written just to Theophilus. And so some people wonder, Theophilus is translated lovers of God. And so maybe it was like to all you Theophili out there, you know. Or maybe, more accurately, it says to the excellent Theophilus, which kind of makes you think it's to one Theophilus. Luke is writing something to someone who has enough prominence 
that he's kind of called the excellence, your excellency or whatever. So someone that was maybe holding a position of influence. All that to say, Luke writes these two really long letters. One, the first one, being all about the life of Jesus and all the things that Jesus has done. And then the second one being the sequel, which explains all the ways that now the story that Jesus inaugurated never ends. And how that never-ending story starts. Okay? So the book of Acts, we can uh, flip over to the first verses of that. It's, it's a long one as well. Uh, like I said, Luke writes it to Theophilus. In my former book, Theophilus, I picture Theophilus getting the first scroll. I'm like, okay, I've got a lot to read here. What, working his way through the events of Jesus, reading the whole scroll, and being like, okay, I'm going to write my own scroll with a few questions because I, I want to know more about what happened next. And so I'm, I'm picturing, I don't know if this happened, but just in my own imagination, old Theophilus gets this very provocative letter from Luke, sends one back and says, tell me more. What happened next? Where does the story go from here? And Luke says, oh man, I've got a 25-foot scroll coming your way, pal. But there, there isn't a chance to have a dialogue necessarily when you're corresponding via long scroll letters, right? So it's like a period of time passes. We know that Acts has to have been written after all the events in Acts happened. So most people think it's somewhere between 70 and 180. Okay, so don't know for sure. So... Luke is writing it to Theophilus, follow up on the first one, ton of effort put into this, this uh, manuscript, this second manuscript, and, uh, and now he wants to get into the nuts and bolts of how this story continues. Okay, so uh, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote, all about, uh, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Yeah, I've got some questions about that. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So you can see Luke is kind of filling in some of the details that were skipped over at the end of the previous book, where he's saying for 40 days... It wasn't like he did road to Emmaus and then all of a sudden he's floating up to the sky. But for 40 days he was appearing to us in a way, and I like to think of it like this, where he's the executor of his own will. You know, he's standing in the room with these guys, describing what he wants to will to them, what he wants to pass to them, what he wants to be their inheritance of the thing that he has started. And he's inviting them into a story that has no ending. He's inviting them to start the human story that he is giving them to put flesh on, is a way we can talk about it. And so he, he gives them this 40-day period of somehow being with them, but also not being like them anymore. Which, you know, you're going to have to scratch your head, like, how does that all work? You know, we, we talk about people being immortalized. Have you heard that phrase before? So there's different ways that figures in history are immortalized, isn't there? They might be just famous people, and it could be for good reasons or bad. Like we could say Hitler was immortalized, or Herod the Great, or Joan of Arc, or some figure in history, 
Copernicus, you know, whoever you want to pick. They're just famous. They're a name that a lot of people recognize because of all the things they've done. Or then some people are, are immortalized because of their influence. You know, maybe you can think of someone like a Mother Teresa, maybe, or Gandhi, or someone that had an, an ethic that shifted how people thought about how to live. They might have been immortalized for those things. We, we could argue, and I don't think it would be hard to argue with most people, that Jesus was immortalized in both of those ways. That he was famous, that a lot of people know his name, enough that it's even used as a swear word. You know, it's like he is so famous that his name is really everywhere. Not maybe everywhere, but almost everywhere. We, we can argue that he's been immortalized in his, in his influence, that as far as ethics and ethical teaching goes, I don't think most people would argue that Jesus is in the top uh, few for an impact as far as influence goes. But there's an immortalization that takes immortalizing someone to the next level. And that is presence and power. So someone that's immortalized in the sense that they continue to be with you through the rest of history. And what we're seeing here is the beginning of how Jesus is immortalized because he's stepping back into the story that is created because of what he's lived in the first chapter. And so it's this bizarre period of time where Luke is helping Theophilus, at least, and us as well, understand that as this, this Jesus story shifts, to one that's remembering his deeds, but also him popping into the scene now and then and fleshing out some of what it means for the future, we get this sense that the book has something to tell us about a Jesus that continues to be present, that's immortalized in the way we can live our lives, in a sense where he is with us. Not just his influence, not just his fame, but he's present in a way where his power is accessible in a forever story. Okay, let's go on to verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, Luke is slipping that detail in again. Not a ghost. He's literally eating food. There's something really significant about that. He gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father's promise, which you have heard me speak about. Okay, so this is, this is the executor of the will himself. This is my will for you. There's something I'm going to give you. It's my very spirit. You know, I'm going to give you the, the center of how the kingdom should operate. And you can receive that in a way that will teach you how to continue to live out the story that I've started. Talk about an inheritance. You know, as far as something that's being willed to someone that holds value... To have the instincts of Jesus himself wrapped up in a gift and given to us to say, you can continue to live out of the way that I decided to live opposed to the brokenness of the world. It's a pretty great gift. For John baptized with water, but in a few days he'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let's go on. We see in verse 6, they gathered around him, and they're still asking questions, um, not unlike they've been asking all along, where like, how, how does this all work? Like, we've been waiting for the Messiah, we've been waiting for 
Israel to take its dominance again, to defeat all its enemies, to kind of be at the forefront of human history, to be God's chosen people again. Like, let's move out some bad guys. So they ask, Lord, are you at this time? So now, like, that your post-death, post-coming back to life is now the moment? Is now the time where the kingdom finally is going to be back in Israel's hands? Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And, and Jesus dealt with this through his whole ministry. This political mindset that the Messiah coming would mean a shift in how politics worked. A shift in who held power. And he consistently sort of pushed against that and said, that isn't, that isn't how to understand the kingdom. You're thinking politically, but that's not the kind of kingdom I'm describing. I'm describing a new kind of kingdom. And here they come again asking, is this when politically things are going to change? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. That's not even the right question, guys. That's what he seems to be asking. And so we see Luke front end loading this book. He's saying it's going to be about how people carry on Jesus' story. It's going to be about how the kingdom that isn't a political one starts to flesh out among normal people. It's going to be about how the Spirit comes and brings the same Spirit by which Jesus cared about things and gives it to us. I've been reading through this book uh, over the last few weeks. Um, Resident Aliens, I referenced it uh, a couple weeks ago. But it, uh, it talks about how um, the way we live as followers of Jesus seems kind of alien to the people around us, if we're doing it right. If we're not doing it right, it's going to seem, you know, no big deal, whatever. But if we're living the way that Jesus' kingdom invites us to live, it's alien, it's bizarre, it's very different than those around us. I think verse 8 kind of gets at it. Let's look at that, and then I want to read this. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses. Heard this one before? The concentric circle thing? You'll be my witnesses right here in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, like the province, in Samaria, it's getting bigger, and even to the ends of the earth. And so Luke is telling us right at the beginning of the book that this is a story that's going to grow, that's going to morph, that's going to go far and he's inviting us to imagine how we'll be part of this. Back to the book. Um, the, in the chapter that I'm looking at here, they're talking about how uh, when we think about salvation, when we think about joining the family, uh, Jesus' family, that sometimes we turn it into this moment that's all about us. You know, that we start to think, okay, well, I've got some things resolved in me, and, and that it's almost like this point in time where we, where something changes and then we forget about it. Now it's ancient history and we go on carrying on with our lives. But, but what they're arguing is that, that joining the Jesus story is like jumping on a moving train. It's not something that isn't existing before us and won't exist long after us, but it's something where we're invited into a story that is going places. That it's already been on the move, and that when we join up, we're jumping on a moving train. That it's not something that's stagnant or that isn't moving. It's moving. 
they use this as an illustration. They say a pastor baptized a baby one time. After the baptism, the pastor said to the baby in a voice loud enough to be heard by parents and the congregation, these words. Little sister, by this act of baptism, we welcome you to a journey that will take your whole life. This isn't the end. It's the beginning of God's experiment with your life. What God will make of you, we know not. Where God will take you, surprise you, we cannot say. This we do know, and this we can say. God is with you. They say, when we're baptized, we, like the first disciples, jump onto a moving train. Love that. As disciples, we don't so much accept a creed or come to a clear sense of self-understanding by which we know this or that with utter certitude. Instead, we become part of a journey that began long before we got here and shall continue long after we are gone. Too often, we have conceived of salvation, what God does to us in Jesus, as a purely personal decision or a matter of finally getting our heads straight, or having some inner feelings about ourselves and God, or having our social attitudes readjusted. We argue instead that salvation is not so much a new beginning, but rather a beginning, and listen to these words, rather a beginning in the middle. When we join the story, we join a moving, active, alive story, the second part of the Jesus story, it's never going to end. Just finish off the last verse. Verses for today. So after he said this, here we go. He was taken up before their very eyes. It's like this was the end of the last book, so we're hearing it again. And a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. We've given Theophilus a little more detail this time. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go in heaven. And so we have this moment where after these 40 days of the executor of his will helping people understand a little more what it means, now there's a shift. And the ascension, for me at least, is this important thing to say that, that those appearances need to kind of come to an end. That experience of Jesus had to kind of land finally to really pass the baton. But it's this really nice 40-day period that helps people prepare themselves for what's coming. And so we see that it's, it's an ending, the, the time Jesus moves in, into heaven. It's a beginning because it's an invitation to say, I'm, I'm not over. I'm not done. I'm not vanishing as if I'm, I'm now immaterial and done and I'm reduced to dust in the ground. I'm still with you, but I'm not with you in the same way. But Jesus is present to us in a way where his story continues. He continues to be alive in us with us and through us. And the book that we're about to look at is example after example of how that fleshes out. So I think 
the question that kind of surfaces for me, where it's like, okay, all that's well and good, yeah, thanks for the download on Lucanax or or whatever. Um, I'm fine, I think a lot of people feel this way. I'm fine with Jesus as famous Jesus. I'm fine with Jesus as ethical influencer. Presence and power, come on. Really, you really believe that, that he is alive and has anything to do with how things play out practically? This book asks that question. Is this guys that are just picking up the mantle and trying to be Jesus all over again? Or are the things that happen through them Jesus? Alive and present, operating, even after he's been ascended. I think we'll see that as we go through the book. Um, are we hanging in there? Got just two more things to kind of say and then I'm done. The first one is, uh, is a story I read that I think kind of answers that objection a bit. You know, saying like, as far as presence and power, I don't know if I've experienced a Jesus that goes beyond, I'm not saying me personally, but people think this. I don't know if I've experienced a present Jesus that's beyond just the ethical way that I think, or whatever. And this story, I thought, was just a great example of what that could look like. It's a story of a, a World War II correspondent named Clarence Hall. Clarence Hall tells the story about this tiny village of Shimabuke, is how I'm going to pronounce it, I don't know if that's right. But it's a, it's a little village in the Okinawan Islands in, near Japan. And apparently 30 years before World War II, some missionaries went to this tiny island and were there long enough to convince at least two people that following Jesus would be the best way they could live their lives. These guys' names were Shosei, Kina, and Mohan. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. Okay. So, these missionaries left uh, a Bible with Shosuke, uh, Kina, and Mohan. And over the next 30 years, lost complete contact. But, you know, they, they had been there for a bit and kind of said some stuff, and it was good. But what happened with these two men is they really took it seriously. And so they started to really study this scripture that had been left and were able to convince the whole village that they would be better off following after Jesus. And so this whole village becomes followers of Jesus. And they start to pattern, like they're really on their own, so they start to pattern how they make decisions around, like, the scriptures. And everything kind of is viewed that way, where they become like a Christian democracy of sorts. So fast forward ahead to World War II. Uh, the, the, the American army came to the island, an advanced patrol swept up to the village with guns leveled. Okay, so they're there, they're battling, and two old men step forth to face the soldiers. Want to guess who? Mohan and Shosei Kim. The two old men stepped forth, bowed low, and began to speak. An interpreter was there and explained that the old men were welcoming the American soldiers as fellow followers of Jesus. That was their assumption. The flabbergasted GIs sent for their chaplain. He said, these guys are talking. You got a chaplain, you're up. 
He came with officers of the intelligence, uh, intelligence service, and they toured the village. They were astounded at the spotlessly clean homes and streets, the gentility of the inhabitants. The other Okinawan villages they had seen were filthy, and the people were ignorant, poverty-stricken. It's just different. Later, and this is the man who wrote this, he said, I strolled through Shimabuke with a tough army sergeant. And these are the words the army sergeant said. I can't figure it out. This kind of people coming from a Bible and a couple of old guys who wanted to live like Jesus Christ. I love his last line. Hear this. Maybe we've been using the wrong kind of weapons to make the world over. I think about Luke and about him sitting down with 25-foot scroll and having the motivation and desire to write that to a guy named Theophilus. And I've been asking myself something I'd love to lend to you as a good question. Who's your Theophilus? We inadvertently received what Theophilus received, but it was enough for Luke to write it to Theophilus. Who are our Theophiluses? Probably Theophilus I don't know. Who? How and how do we think about being on a moving train where the only way the story continues is if the people that receive it pass it on? If they receive the baton, run and pass it on somehow. And maybe as you think of that, you think, well, I don't know how to pass on the baton. Well, Luke, the physician, his way, was writing a letter to one guy. And look at how it was passed on. Look at how this act of what he did passed a moving story, a forever story, onto billions of future readers. Sometimes the acts that we do seem insignificant, but when they're rooted in a significant story, they have significance just for that reason. And when a whole bunch of small significant acts come together, they really have an impact. We can be part of the story through minuscule acts that are done for the right reasons. I know this is going on, but you guys, I think, will like this last one. So um, are we okay to hear one more? Yeah. And you can always just get up and leave too if you want. <laughs> I don't know who wrote this, but uh, I, I tried to find his name, but I, I only got his first name. But I'm just going to end with this and literally be done. He says this. When I was a kid, my dad told me two stories all the time. The first one, a couple goes to Harvard University, asked to see the president because they want to give a donation to the university. The president agrees to see them, but he doesn't know them, and because they're from somewhere way out west, he treats them kind of curtly. After a few moments, the woman finally turns to her husband and says, Come on, Leland, I think there are better things we can do with our money than give it to Harvard. The man was Leland Stanford, founder of Stanford. 
papers. <laughs> Even as a child, the writer writes, I understood that the moral of this story was not be nice to strangers. Instead, the story was about who has real power. The moral is, if you have money, you can tell anyone, even the most established, respected, or powerful person in the world, to go take a flying leap. The second story my father used to tell me went like this. One day, a minister was invited to visit John D. Rockefeller's mansion. As he drove up the winding drive lined with tall trees, he said, My, oh my, this is what the Lord might have done if he'd had the money. As a child, I understood the moral of this story, too. The minister who represents belief in God is overwhelmed by Rockefeller's wealth. Not only that, he says God himself doesn't have as much money as Rockefeller. Implicit in this claim is that he doesn't have as much power as Rockefeller. That God is powerless. Rockefeller is more powerful than God because money is more powerful than God. As you might guess from the stories my dad told me growing up, he spent most of his life working really hard to make money. But then he made a tactical error. My mom and I were going to an Episcopal church, and he decided to come along one day. The priest was full of old-time religion, and he gave an altar call, something on that day connected with my dad. And he went forward and decided he was going to follow Jesus. He was 60 years old. He started to read a small King James Bible, and for the first time in his life, he began giving money with real interest. He told me, in what was a rare sharing of his personal life, Kevin, I've started to give, and it's been a great adventure. My dad suffered a heart attack at age 70, he lay in a hospital bed for five days and then he died. At the funeral home, they laid him in a casket with his navy blazer and a land's end tie. A woman I'd never seen came up to me and said, you don't know me, but I was in a bad marriage. My husband was beating me and I needed to get out to save my life. But I didn't know what I would do to support myself. But your dad paid for me to go to junior college and get a degree so I could be a dental hygienist. He paid for the whole thing, and nobody else ever knew about it. Now I have a job, and I'm making it. Your dad literally saved my life. Come on in, guys. Last bit. I wonder, would have been, wonder what would have been my dad's legacy if he had kept loving money and tried to be like Leland Stanford or Rockefeller. He would have died with a lot of money but not a lot of love. Instead, he took a risk. He tried to learn how to keep his life free from the love of money. And when he died, he left behind a woman who knows every day when she cleans people's teeth that, she, that it's a miracle she's still alive. God, as we go through Acts, we see stories of people who continue on the Jesus story through small things, through big things, through miraculous moments. And we ask you to show us how to continue the story in our own way.